Good morning, Midland Free. My name is Pastor Jeremy Lobdell. So glad you're here to worship with us this morning. As you come in, if you're joining us in person, I hope you saw the little uh, communion cups on the way in and you were able to pick up one of those. If you did not get one, feel free to just jump up right now and go grab one because at the end of the service, we're going to celebrate communion together. If you're at home and this is a surprise, heads up. Go grab some bread and some juice. In just a moment, uh, we're going to be celebrating communion. So we want to give you uh, that heads up so you can prepare to continue to worship with us as we've sang and prayed this morning. Now we uh, go before the Lord to hear the reading and exposition of his words. So let me open us in prayer. I just thank you for being here. Thank you for joining online wherever you're at today, home or away. Thank you for engaging uh, with God and the body of Midland Free. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for who you are. We praise you, Lord. We do praise you for the way that you've made in our lives, that the redemption that you are doing in our world and the way that you're at work. We pray that you would help us to see that even more this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1945, Henry A. Ironside... Um, tells the following story. He says, Some years ago, a fearful train, uh, a railroad wreck, took a dreadful toll of life and limb in an eastern state. A train loaded with young people returning from school was stalled on a suburban track because of what is known as a hot box. This train, called the Limited, was due soon, but a flagman was sent back to warn the engineer in order to avert a rear-end collision. Thinking all was well, the crowd laughed and chatted while the train hands worked on it in a fancied way. Suddenly, the whistle of the Limited was heard, and on came the heavy train and crashed into the uh, other one with horrible effect. The engineer of the um, oncoming train saved his own life by jumping, and some days afterwards was brought into court to account for his part in the calamity. And now a curious discrepancy in the testimony occurred, he asked. He was asked, did you see the flagman warning you to stop? And he replied, I saw him, but he waved a yellow flag. And I took it for granted that all was well, and so went on, though slowing down. The flagman was also called and said, what color of flag did you wave? And he said, a red flag. But he went by me like a shot. Are you sure it was red? He was asked, absolutely. Both insisted on the correctness of their testimony, and it was demonstrated that neither was colorblind. Finally, the man was asked to produce the flag itself as evidence, and after some delay, he was able to do so, and then the mystery was solved. It had been red, but it was exposed to weather so frequently that the red was bleached out, and it was all but a dirty yellow. This is what happens when we fail to call sin, sin. When we want to whitewash things and look over them and ignore them and make excuses and look the other way, all of a sudden we're headed for disaster. And at first, like the flag, you probably don't really recognize it. I mean, it's just a little discoloration, a little acceptance, a little more of this or a little more of that. But before long, it's completely bleached out and it's entered into your life and you're going down 
the wrong tracks. The Bible is very clear about sin. Much to our dismay in the modern pulpit, many preachers are not. And what it does when you read it in black and white on the pages is sometimes you look at it and you go, oh, gross. Don't let my children see that. That's terrible. What just happened there? But make no mistake about it. Scripture is clear and it puts sin front and center so it shows us how bad we really do need a Savior. How messed up we are, not just on the outside, but all the way into our heart of hearts on the inside as well. So today we're going to look at some verses that directly address sin. And the cool thing about the Bible is it just doesn't leave us there wallowing in misery and defeat, but it gives us a way to fight against it. Today's sermon title is called What to Fight Against and How. And I think that's very important because in our modern culture, everybody wants to fight. Like everybody wants to fight against something. You go on Facebook and it's rant one day and it's a rant another and it's this or that. And man, oh man, whether it's politics or opinions or whatever else, everybody is up in arms. One Christian author who's extremely well respected and very well researched by the name of Ed Stetzer calls it the age of outrage. We're living here not in a place of defining ourselves by what we believe and who we are, but instead, we define ourselves by who we're fighting against. So, oh, I don't like them. And then we say bad things, and other people who don't like them too come over to our side. And we may not even be on the same team. It just so happens that we're mad at the same people. And that's how we choose our teams. This is not the Christian way. Instead, as you can see in the book of Colossians, what happens is it says, look, this is who we are. Here's our identity. It's rooted and built up and founded in Christ and who he is. And therefore, we come together and we're not like Jews or Greek or barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but we're Christians. And Christ is all. Not Democrats, we're not Republicans, not maskers or anti-maskers. We're Christians, not vaxxers or anti-vaxxers. We're Christians. In this age of outrage, what should we really fight against? Where should we spend our emotional energy and effort? Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Colossians 3, verse 5. If you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along. If you do not, we're going to have it up on the screen. But we encourage you to live out our mission at this church and embrace God's Word. Make it a part of your life. Own it. Live it out. Here it is in verse 5. It says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Kill it. Put it to death. What is that? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. But I thought Jesus was the wrath of God 
is coming. In these things, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Like what? Like anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is neither Jew and Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, Scythian slave, free, masker, anti-masker, vaxxer, anti-masker, Democrat, Republican, yada, yada, yada. But Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what do we fight against? Well, if I were choosing a main idea or a theme for today's sermon, I would say overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 21, if you want to look it up later. But it's a simple idea, but it's very hard to do. But in this text, what it does is it, it gives a list. Now, some people get all wrapped up about lists in the Bible. Um, let me just address that real quick. What happens is some people are like, oh, there's a list. And we think of it from a, liter- from a, a, a modern, very literal, black and white scientific community. This must be all the sins there is. That's it. There's a list. No, no, no. It's not an exhaustive list. This is just the Apostle Paul from his heart talking to his people, and these are the ones the Holy Spirit brought to mind. If you actually look in other books, there's similar lists, but they're not all the same. What does that mean? The Bible's in error? No. It's just a list, man. Like one week the grocery list is one thing, next week it's another. It's different. And so too, sometimes with genealogies and other stuff they're not looking at it from a literal like this has got to be everything we can possibly think of thing they may give a genealogy and they just give the highlights like here's a name you should know and here's a name you should know and here's a name you should know you can't necessarily chronologically chart things just like that lists have a literary function in scripture it's a actually a big study but here's a list and so don't get all tangled up in this is all the sins or this is doesn't match another one. No, it's just the apostle saying, here's some things that really are common to us all that we need to work on. And so I want to address some specific ones today. And the, w- the way in which I'll do it is in three steps. We'll talk about those specific sins. We'll say this is what they are. Okay, so we're going to just define them. And you're like, oh, that's boring. Well, wait till you hear the definitions of these sins. Number one, we're going to define them. Number two, the next thing we're going to do is say, where do they come from? You know, well, how, how does this get here? And number three, how do we fight against it? So sins defined, what leads to them, and how to fight them. Sins defined, what leads to them, and how to fight them. Those are the three movements of today's sermon. So let's look at the sins in verse 8. Eight. If we can show that text, I want to show these to you. I'm going to just go through these and I'm going to say this is what the Bible says these are. Here they are. 
But I'm going to do something else too, and I'll show you what that is here in just a minute. But let me read this. It's Colossians 3, verse 8. It says, but now you must put them all away. What are we putting away? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. There we go. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Now, I also said I'm going to do something else. I want to give us a chance this morning. We're going into communion here in a minute, which is a great, great, perfect timing of God from the Holy Spirit. You know, I was looking at this text and seeing all these sins. I'm like, man, this is a good day to have communion. <laughs> wow, do we need some forgiveness? And then I was like, wait, that's what we're doing this Sunday. Hey, what do you know? But here's the thing. Beyond even our experience at the table, I want to give you some opportunity to participate in God's forgiveness this morning. And notice carefully that I say God's forgiveness. I am not saying Pastor Jeremy's forgiveness, okay? I'm not saying your priest's forgiveness. I'm not saying the Pope's forgiveness. I'm not saying anything else. I'm saying God's forgiveness, and that's on purpose. Because what we believe that Hebrews clearly tells us is that there is one high priest. There's one high priest, and that's Jesus. And the rest of us are all priests on the same level. If you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, that makes you a priest. Which means you can go before God and you don't need another priest to do that. And so what I want to do this morning may look a little bit liturgical, but it's just an opportunity for you to participate. And I am not the one offering you forgiveness. Jesus is. And so the key is, if you are sincerely confessing your sins to Christ, I can promise you they will be forgiven. Not because I can forgive sins. I can't do that. I am not God. I did not die on the cross. I am not perfect. I didn't create you. I have no ability whatsoever to forgive you for your sins. But Jesus can. And so this morning what I'm going to do is... I'm going to define these sins. Like, for example, anger. I'll go through the definition. And if you're like me, then you might be feeling a little bit like this. That's when we need some forgiveness, right? And so what I'll do is I'll say something like this. I'll say, dear Lord, please forgive us for our anger. Anybody who agrees with that, anybody who affirms that, anybody who wants Jesus' forgiveness after I say that, you say, Amen. God, so it's your way of participating in that. I will say it out loud after I define it. It's like a call. Dear Lord, please forgive us for our anger. And you will say, Amen. That's it. All right? So let me define these sins. This is how we'll go through what our sins, sins define, but also offer forgiveness as well. Um, anger. Anger comes from the Greek word orge. Um, and there are several authors here that I'll be quoting, so don't let me be guilty of plagiarism. Just saying up front, Tom Constable, Max Anders, and Kenneth Woost. But I'm combining them all, so here we go. Anger is inappropriate, noisy, assertiveness, and abuse. Inappropriate, noisy, assertiveness, and abuse It is also uniquely, and this will come into our definition of wrath, what makes anger different from wrath. It is a settled, slow, smoldering, below-the-surface emotion. It's like in you. It's there. It's burning. It's like a volcano boiling up and ready to explode. 
Anger is not the explosion. That's wrath. Anger is that thing that boils under the surface. That's why Wuist calls it an abiding and settled habit of the mind. That's why anger is so hard to overcome because you establish these thinking patterns like ski tracks in the snow and you just beat down this path and almost automatically fall into it and as soon as you're there, that's the way you go because that's your pattern and that's what you've established and it's really hard to break those patterns up. That is what is defined as anger. Inappropriate, noisy assertiveness, a settled, slow, smoldering, below-the-surface, abiding, settled habit of the mind. Dear God, forgive us for anger. The Lord forgives you. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us. The Lord forgives you. Wrath. What is wrath? It comes from the Greek word thumos. It is described by Kittle as a violent movement. And it can be applied not just to emotion, but to air or water or the ground or living creatures all boiling up. Unlike the settled hostility of anger, wrath is a passionate Rage, an outburst, an explosion which flares up and burns with intensity. Wrath is the result of anger. It's this sequential thing you see here in the text. You go from like one to the other, from anger to wrath. If you let those settled feelings linger in your heart and you don't deal with them, you think that you're, you know, just being gracious and not calling it out but then what ends up happening if nothing changes it smolders and boils and then explodes sometimes it's better to go ahead and have that confrontation early than to let it evolve and develop and grow into something much worse that is wrath dear god please forgive us for the times our anger has boiled over and exploded into wrath. Amen. The Lord forgives you. The Lord forgives you. Malice. Malice is another one here. And this one is described as a deliberate intent to harm. I think of it like this. I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example of when I've done malice. Um, in high school, I played some sports. I was never any good, but I had fun trying. And I went out and occasionally got fouled. But if you get fouled, like flagrantly or deliberately, it can be a bit bothersome. And so it may be the case that I just so happened to be watching for a certain said player on the other side of the court. I'm looking out for this guy because I, I'm going to get him back. He fouled me. And as soon as I get a chance, boom. <laughs> Oops, sorry about that. I was just running down the court, right? Here comes my elbow. Boom. That's malice. That's intent to harm. When you're in your heart of hearts, you know, I'm going to get them for that. It may not be a basketball, it may be a comment, it may have been something someone did at work, it may have been many things, 
But you're just silently holding on to that little grudge until your opportunity arrives and then, bam, got him. That's called malice, ill will. And it is any attitude or action which leads to the harm of another. Lord Jesus, please forgive us for our malice. You have no malice against us, though you owe us great punishment. Your will is not ill, but it is good. And yet we who are owed nothing hold debts against others. Lord, forgive us for our malice. Amen. The Lord forgives you. The Lord forgives you. The next one is slander, slander. And this one is actually a word that you may recognize in English. It is blasphemia, which we get our English word. Blaspheme, which is basically you speak poorly of someone. Slander is to speak poorly of someone. It is defamation of character. It's an attack on their character. It um, especially happens when you're speaking behind their backs, when they're not present. Tom Constable says it is basically summed up by saying it's words that hurt another person. Let's go ahead and own it this morning. Has anyone in here ever said something that has hurt someone else? Amen. The Lord, Lord, forgive us for the times we have spoken poorly. Amen. The Lord forgives you. He will. He will forgive you. Not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of rejecting Jesus. You can blaspheme just about anything else, but don't do that. But the Lord will forgive you. So those are the sins that I want to address here, first of all, is these sins in verse 8. There's more sins out there. It's not all the sins. But these are ones, and I didn't get the last one, but you get the idea. These are sins that are common to all of us and things that sort of build up and one piles on to the other those are sins now what is sin source what is sin source verse 5 actually kind of gives us that and it lists a bunch of sins but in there there's a hint towards sin source verse 5 if we could show that real quick thank you excellent slide team including the fannings thank you um sexual immorality impurity passion and what's the next one evil desires Evil desires. Let me say that again. Evil desires. What does that tell you? It actually tells you not all desires are evil. There are good desires. The fact that he has to spell out that some desires are evil indicates there are others that are not. You see what happened in the fall, what Christians call the fall, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and instead of living forever in his perfect paradise, decided to go their own way, the judgment upon them as they experienced the consequence of their actions, including just decay and death and destruction. And as a result, we are damaged all the way down to our DNA. Like the very structure of our cells is messed up. We're broken. Deep within us so much so that our hearts are broken metaphorically speaking allegorically speaking and as a result our desires are evil 
Like our desires, what we want to do isn't even good. Augustine, a great Christian, once describes it like this in a fourfold state. He says, you know, you go from um, being able to sin and able to not sin. That's before the fall, just for fun, just for kicks. And then after the fall, they're not able to not sin. And then after Jesus, they're able to not sin. And then in the new heavens and the new earth, they're not able to sin ever again. Why? Because your desires have been fixed. Everything is repaired, is restored, even beyond the Edenic or the original state. That's where we want to get to. But right now, we are not there. Instead, we're in a place where our desires are damaged. But because of Christ, because He is here, because He is with us, because He is in us, we're able to not sin. That is possible. It may not feel like it sometimes, but it is possible. We can fight against it. It doesn't mean we always overcome. I think sometimes we get discouraged because we're like, oh man, I lost a sin again. This is not working. We're going to lose. In the place that we're at right now, on occasion, we will lose. But we can win. And we will get to a point where we will never lose again. That's the beauty of the next section. I'll get to that in just a minute. But right now, here we are in this place of damagedness, of brokenness, that's being restored, that isn't fully restored yet, but is in the process. We have evil desires. We're broken all the way down to our DNA. And so, as a result, what ends up happening is we want stuff we shouldn't. That's the next word, covetousness. We want more or different than what God has given. Klein Snodgrass defines it like this. He says, even though God has packed life full of good things, most of us are never satisfied. When desire for more takes over, it distorts the mind. You know how that feels. You're focused on it. You can't get away from it. Oh, this is getting to me. It deliberates us. It disrupts us. And finally, it becomes our master. This desire for more leads to other sins. I would say it like this. Once you want something really bad, you're compromised. As soon as you want something really bad, that means you are compromised. Because you're willing to do extra or a little bit more to get it. And now you're compromised because there's going to be pressure on you with that strong desire to go after it. And if the way you go about it may be a little bit of a shortcut, all of a sudden we're making excuses and not doing the right thing. This sin of evil desire leads to coveting, which leads to disaster. Klein Snodgrass again says the desire to have more motivates all other sins. Even more important than Mr. Snodgrass is a fellow by the name of James, Jesus' half-brother. And what he says is this, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions, those evil desires, are at war within you. 
you desire and you do not have. You're compromised. And so you want and you murder. You covet. You cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not. You ask and you do not receive because you're asking wrongly to spend it on your passions, not on the kingdom of God. This is how we get there. We are damaged. We are truly broken and messed up. But that's a funny thing I think about Christianity. Some people will label Christians, oh, you're a bunch of Christians, you're just a bunch of holier than thou's and da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh-uh. We of all people admit we're messed up. Well, that's why we're Christian. <laughs> it's because we need a Savior. And we just happen to believe that He's Jesus. And so you see, Christians, above anybody else, should admit that we are not holy. That we are broken and simple and in need of help. That's the nature of our existence. Is we need a Savior. We are sinful. We do not hide that from anybody. Is it a surprise that big Christian leaders fall? No, all Christians fall. Is it right? No. It's terrible. It's unacceptable in every way and fully deserving of our condemnation. But who are we to judge? We're no better than anybody else. We all need a Savior. And so the reality is this. Christians admit the existence or state of our condition, which is fallen and broken, sinful, evil desires that lead to covetousness, which leads to compromise, which leads to wanting more that we shouldn't have. We're broken. We need a Savior. So how then do we fight against this? How then? Well, the good news is, so number one, here's specific sins. Number two, that's what leads to them. And number three, the application, here's the takeaways for today. How do we fight against this? How do we fight against this? Number three is this, is good news. Here's the good, 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 good news. Good news. This is why they call it the gospel. This is good news. It's tucked away in here. It's hard to see, but let me point it out because the sins sort of jump off the page, but there's something in here that's very encouraging based on the verses right before this, verse 10, verse 10 says this, having put on the new self, remember the old self, the broken, evil one, the new self, that's where we want to go, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image, the perfect image. Remember that image of Jesus in chapter 1 and how beautiful that image was? That is the knowledge of that image of the creator that we are being renewed in. We are being made into that. And notice, please, that that is also what's called a passive voice. That it is being done to us. That like we just sang just a few moments ago with the way maker, miracle worker, right in there, something very important. I don't think that song's like, hey, help me win the lottery get a new car that's not the miracle we're praying for the miracle we're praying for is to fix us our brokenness our sinfulness if we could get to this point where we never sin again now that would be a miracle new car any old person can do that but only jesus 
can save us from our sins. Only Jesus can save us from our sins. So we sing that song and we say, even when I don't know that you're working, right? Even when I don't see it. Even when I feel like I am failing, which is often, I am being renewed. Even when I don't see it, I am being renewed. After the image of my creator, the Holy Spirit is at work even when I'm not. Even when I'm messing up, even when I'm blowing it. I got so many mistakes I can look back on. (laughs) My wife was telling me about some stuff the other day and I was like, honey, that ain't nothing. Let me tell you about my mistakes. (laughs) Do you remember when I bought that car that I thought was so cool that was really a piece of junk? (laughs) I could have had a Honda whatever and it would probably be still working today. (laughs) That one's engine blew up. We rebuilt it. It blew up again. I wasted so much money on that thing. What in the world? I got so many mistakes, I can't even count them all. But even when I don't realize that the Lord is at work, His grace is so much stronger. Here's the thing you need to know about grace as we talk about how to fight against sin. Christian life is by grace through faith. Christian life is by grace through faith. And and we sit here and say, okay, well, that sounds nice. Here's what it means that's beyond nice. Grace is power. Grace is power. Grace is force. Grace is this tidal wave of overwhelming strength of God that overcomes all of our mistakes. Grace is power. It's not warm, fuzzy little, you know, cupids on the side. It is power. And it has to be powerful because I've made a lot of mistakes. And to overcome all those mistakes, you better be pretty good. And believe it or not, you've made some mistakes too. And to overcome all those mistakes plus my mistakes plus everybody else's mistakes, that's a lot. That requires some real power. And that's what we call God's grace. Power. Man, it is strong. It's not just like, oh, grace. No. It's strength. It is God overcoming our evil with this gargantuan huge wave of his love he's blasting it out i used to hear one preacher say and it doesn't make any sense but i like it god can beat a straight path with a crooked stick why well that's for me (laughs) amen what power the lord has in his grace that he is communicating to us. How do we fight against it? By grace through faith. God's power communicated to us. It's grace. Remember, mercy, we said this earlier in the series, mercy is when God doesn't give us the punishment we deserve. It's mercy when we don't get punished. Grace is when we get a gift we don't deserve. And that's why we need both. We need the great mercy of not being punished, and we need the grace of God's blessing. So here, by grace through faith, number one. And number two, once you really latch on to that, once you latch on to God's grace, man, should we be thankful. Amen? Man, should we be thankful. And then once we realize, as we talk about thankfulness, that it is, in fact, the antidote for sin. 
We start being thankful for Jesus' death on the cross and the Holy Spirit that he's given me and the promise of future restoration. It's hard to wallow in my bad day. And boy, I want to. I want to stay there. But Jesus says, no, get out. Go here. Go to the place where you remember what I did for you on the cross. For God so loved the world, Kai said, and amen, we say. He gave his son. Nobody's done that for me. Jesus loves you. And when you start going there, what do you say? But thank you, Jesus. Now, listen, I'm not giving you magic like hocus pocus almagocus. But let me say, these words are powerful if you're running into sin. Thank you, Jesus. If you are tempted by evil desire, overcome evil with good by saying, thank you, Jesus. If you are tempted by your own, my own, our own evil desires, you overcome that by saying, thank you, Jesus. It seems so simple, but true. How do you fight against it? Through thankfulness, through thankfulness. You have to. In fact, it's funny. You know, all these, some people say it like this. All truth is God's truth. And there's things Christians know that we've always known. And all of a sudden, some big study comes out. And there's a TED Talk on it. And somebody, you know what we discovered? After researching 10,000 people over 20 years, thankful people do better in life. Oh, no way. You're kidding me. Really? But yeah, actually, there's several TED Talks on it. My wife was lining them up for me this week. She's like, you know, if you need one, there's all these TED Talks. I'm like, how many are there? <laughs> A lot. And they all show the same thing. They all arrive at the same point. But if you practice thankfulness, you live a better life. Well, what do you know about that? <laughs> Here's your sign. I believe that's what the Lord said. Fight against it with thankfulness. And then the other thing, too, I want to encourage you as I get ready to close, one other really good way to overcome evil with good is forgiveness, right? It's hard to forgive. That's how we get those feelings of anger and resentment and malice and covetousness. Somebody gets something we don't. Somebody's given more recognition than they deserve. Somebody says something they shouldn't have. Someone has a habit of doing something that we know is wrong, and they do it so consistently that we can predict when it's going to happen. Yeah, I know. And then what you do is you assign that to their character, which is, of course, blasphemia. You assign it to their character and you say, well, that's who they are. And you deny the power of the grace of God that could actually change them. Even though it's built in, and sometimes, admittedly, people make it to the grave with the same sins they started with. Admit. But, God's grace is powerful enough to change anything. And who are we to say any different? And so, when we are tempted to go down that path, we need to forgive. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. Help me, Jesus, to forgive them. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. Help me, Jesus, to forgive them. Oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> For forgiving me. There's two pe- Thank you. Thank you. There are two people admitting this out there right now. I appreciate it. At least that's what I experienced. It's hard. It's hard. Romans 12, 21 says, Overcome evil with good. We have evil in us. 
And this command to us to put to death and put away is to us. It's true that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are doing their work, but we get to work too. That's why it's an aorist active imperative in the Greek. Because it is like, now this is your job. Jesus is working on you, but you get to be a part of the solution as well. Get to work. Put to death. Do it. Actively fight against it. There's so many images in the scripture. There's images of wrestling, struggling, running. Image here is fighting, killing, putting to death. It's aggressive. It is to execute sin. Because sin is trying to execute us. And if we don't kill it first, it will kill us. And there's no yellow flags that are enough to stop it. This one is fully red. You have to put it to death. Father, we thank you and praise you for our only hope, your son, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be a part of the solution of putting it to death. You put him to death so we could put it to death. Lord God, forgive us for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. As we said earlier, now is the time.